I took an insane pay cut going to uh, from finance into a fashion startup. And is it more than fifty percent of a pay cut? Yeah. I can't imagine what your mom and dad must have thought about it. Dude, they were about to disown me. (laughs) (laughs) The views, information, and opinions expressed in this podcast and this YouTube channel are solely the views of the individuals involved. It does not reflect the views of their organizations, employers, and employees, past, present, and future. Uncool is produced by Creators at Work and Story Machine. Like this show? Then rate it five stars and subscribe to us on YouTube, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uncool is a podcast produced, written, and hosted by Sean Lee Winchong and co-hosted by Yenling Lo, co-produced by Raven Lim, and edited by Ray Ng. Uncool. It's cool to be uncool. So, have you ever felt like you just want to stop whatever it is you're doing, stop freelancing, just go and do something else completely? Sean, more often than not, <laughs> believe me. <laughs> it's like easier said than done, right? Because, you know, you've been doing all these things for quite some time. I would say, in your case, you're ending maybe 10 years. You're very heavily associated with it. And then perhaps you just feel like, you know, I don't know what else you can do, right? What, what else do I know? Which, which may be true, or it may not be true. But it is a perspective that other people would have of you because, you know, you're very associated with it. And then next thing you know, you know, I'm just going to continue doing the same thing. I'm not going to do anything else. Yeah, like for you as well, you've been doing it for, I don't know, 10, 15 years yourself. And switching is difficult. And for me, I've done it once before when I went from a full-time job into freelancing. But it's never easy, I think. Even right now, thinking about switching back is another big decision. I keep getting told that. And was like, hey, for 15 years, uh, you've been directing. What else do you know? And then sometimes I'm like, okay, I don't know how to answer that question. I don't know how to answer that question. So today we are going to be talking about this. I know it, yes, we know it's difficult, but is it really impossible? Well, that's what we're discussing today in How to Talk to People, the uncool version, about making the transition. And we have for our guest today, Jennifer Ong. She's done that herself as well. And now she helps people transition in her careers. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me here, guys. I guess I'll share my introduction. <laughs> I'll share my introduction. <laughs> no, because if, if, you, if you listen to Jennifer, you you know, you look at her name, Ong, you know, you think, oh yeah, she's a Singaporean, but then, and then, but you know, she's not. <laughs> I'm not. I know my last name sounds Singaporean. I fit right in. Um, but I'm actually from Hong Kong. So uh, born and raised in Hong Kong. Um, my grandparents are actually from Fujian, which is why my last name is Ong, rather than the more traditional Wong last name in, that's common in Hong Kong. Uh, a lot of Fujianese people moved to Singapore, which is why there's a lot of Ongs in Singapore. A lot of people do tend to think I'm Singaporean based off my last name, but I'm actually not. So born and raised in Hong Kong, basically spent my entire life up until I was 18 in Hong Kong. And then I went to the U.S. for university. I worked in the U.S. for a couple of years before moving back to Hong Kong, uh, where I spent a couple of years uh, in Hong Kong before I then moved to, well, when I was in the U.S., uh, when I was working in the U.S. and when I was working in Hong Kong, I was in finance, working at BlackRock. And I did that for seven years and then decided to move into a fashion startup here in Singapore which is why I decided to move to Singapore in 2019 to join Style Theory. And then recently um, moved from Style Theory into setting up my own career coaching business. And yeah, I've been in Singapore ever since. Wow. So those sounded like very, very big changes. Very dramatic. (laughs) Yes, that's right. In very fashionable style, I would say. What, What prompted you each time to make the change? My career journey really is very abnormal. (laughs) unconventional probably a better word for it um but really for me i moved from finance into fashion because well i was never truly passionate about finance um i actually went into finance because i thought that that was the right thing to do i had a lot of preconceived notions around what success looks like and what a career should look like um and so growing up i was just taught that i should get good grades go to a good university, um, get a good job afterwards that really pays the bills, and you keep what you love to do on the side. And so actually growing up, I really liked art. I really loved drawing. And I'm so jealous about you guys who are able to build a career in this space because I never did. And I still love it. Um, But uh, for me, my parents were always like, you must pick something practical. You know, how are you going to make money by going into the creative space? And so I really put a lot of my interest aside and focus very much on doing, um, you know, the more 
practical major, like studying economics and going into a very practical route, like doing finance, instead of really pursuing something that was maybe a slightly more creative um, and something that I was more interested in. And so that's what led me into finance. And as you can tell, <laughs> probably not the right industry for me because <laughs> I didn't wasn't even that interested in the major to begin with and wasn't even that interested in the industry to begin with. But I think it was just something I was, it was very deeply instilled in me that I needed to do. And that's what like success looks like as a career. So that's how I got into it. Um, and so I stayed there for seven years, which is insane looking back because I knew six months into my job that that wasn't the right job for me. But it really took me seven years to really figure out what exactly it was that I wanted to do and to really get clear on unpacking what it is that I actually wanted to do for myself, right? Um, Because I think I spent my whole life delaying gratification. Like, you know, you just get good grades, put aside what you want to do in exchange for, you know, getting, doing the right thing or getting the right job. And so I spent the first 20 years of my life delaying gratification to the point where I actually forgot what it was that I was really interested in. And so it took me a long time to unpack a lot of that for myself and to really figure out, okay, what exactly am I interested in? And that's actually how I found out or landed on fashion. So fashion was something I was always passionate about. Like I love reading fashion magazines growing up. Like I've always loved putting clothes together. People have always asked me for advice on like how to, you know, what what to mix and match or or whatever it might be. Um, But I just never thought that I could build a career in fashion because I had a lot of, um, you know, stereotypes about what what it was like to, to work in fashion. In my mind, there was only two jobs. You either become a fashion designer and I am not good at, you know, I have no background and not very good at at that. (laughs) Um, Or you go work at a fashion magazine, which I didn't really necessarily like that sort of culture. And so for me, then I very quickly ruled out fashion earlier on in my career. But I think through a lot of soul searching and a lot of understanding the opportunities and the roles in the market, I found the perfect mix for myself, which was working at a fashion startup. So I got the exposure to startups that I was really looking for and also working in a business role where I got to really bring my business skill set to the table. So that's how I got into, um, into from finance into, into fashion. Was there ever an incident or a moment whereby after you made that transition from BlackRock to Star Theory and you thought, okay, I'm never going to live this down. This is just completely, completely embarrassing. So what yeah. happened? Yeah, and I think also when it comes to setting your own company, that's really scary, right? Because... Like failure rates are really high when it comes to setting up your own company. And I know that I could have had the traditional sense of success if I had just stuck it out, right? So the opportunity cost for me was super, super high. And so I think that was the really, really scary part. And to put myself out there so openly when I'm building my own company, the failure that comes is also going to be just equally as visible. I think that was really the scariest part. But what I always do with my fear is I use my fear to drive me further <laughs> rather than use my fear to hold me back. And I think that that's been one of the most powerful drivers that I've been able to build for myself to motivate myself to continue on is I actually put myself in these really scary, uncomfortable positions so that that creates the fear <laughs> that then leads to the motivation <laughs> that then hopefully leads to the results that can then take my, my uh, career to the next level. I want to ask, Jennifer, now that you are in the career coaching business, right, and you coach people through their transitions, um, and a lot of them most likely face the same issues that you have faced, the same struggles that you had about wanting to get a good job or, or feeling like they needed to, and then going to pursue their passions most of the time. So I think for me, um, I've always had, I guess, a growth mindset. And I think that's one of the things that I always tell my clients because truly it's so normal for people to be like, oh, I already spent, you know, five years, 10 years, 15 years doing finance or law or supply chain or uh, something in, in the creative space, right? And you feel like, oh, there's no way I could possibly ever switch career paths. But I always say that that's a limiting belief that you have. And I always try to teach you guys how to employ a growth mindset around that. And I can go into detail in a bit and we can dive deep into that. A lot of people come to me because they resonate with my story and they understand and they know that I understand what they're currently going through. Because I think there's a lot of nuances to this, right? Especially if you're brought up a certain way, if everybody around you is thinking a certain way, it's really scary to put yourself into this unconventional career path. 
for you to really try to break out and do something different when the majority of people around you is in a very traditional corporate career path. Um, so I think that that's, that's why they usually like to, to come to me about this. But yeah, usually the question always for me is passion versus money, right? <laughs> I think that's always the million dollar question. And I always tell people this, it's not binary. It's not black or white. It's never money or passion. And what we do together is we really try to help you figure out what that right balance is for you. What is that right ratio for you? And explore the shades of gray in between to see what really makes sense for you. How important is the money aspect? How important is the passion aspect? And what are you willing to maybe give and take? Maybe it's giving up some financial upside for more passion, or maybe it's the other way around. And it really is very personal. And we really try to figure out which shade of gray really makes sense for you. And it can change over time as well. Maybe earlier on in your career, you're more willing to take risks, or maybe earlier on in your career, you want more financial stability so that you can then take more risks later on in life. So it really does depend on the person. Um, and it's really for us to get deep into understanding what that looks like for you. Yeah, I, I love that you you brought in that the shades of grey thing. You know, you can ask that question as many times to someone else, such as a, a third party. You can ask for advice as much as you want. But I think the person you should be asking if you're really thinking about transitioning is asking yourself. Like, it's different for everyone. So on that note, you went from one version of success. And the, the typical version of success, I think, for a lot of people into uh, another one, which I, I feel seems pretty successful as well. I mean, I love Style Theory as a brand and having joined that, that's amazing, you know, Yay. in and of itself. <laughs> and then becoming coming out to have your own business, they're all very, very different versions of it. Having transitioned through um, different career changes a couple of times. What does success mean now to you? That's the million dollar question. <laughs> um, but I think it really is um, that my values changed over time. And I think that that's very normal. And I think I want to highlight that to people because people tend to think about a career as one thing, one job that I do forever or one career path that I do forever, one skill set that I bring to the table forever. But we are constantly changing as human beings and our world around us is also constantly changing as well. It's almost crazy to think that you have to stay the same when everything around you is always changing and there's phases of life that you go through as well, right? Maybe in the early parts of your career when you have no family, you know, you're an independent, single person, uh, you care about different things. Versus later on, when you have a mortgage, when you have a family, there's other things that will be become, will become more important to you at that point. And so for me, if I look back on my career, early days, what I valued was prestige, financial stability, external validation, which is why working at BlackRock really made a lot of sense for me at that point in time. And I think intellectual stimulation and mentorship was also really important. So I wanted to be surrounded by really smart people, a lot of people who were um, who were who were able to be my mentors and teach me a lot about the corporate world. And then I moved into the next phase of my career, which was really just trying to find something that I was passionate about. So you can think the first stage was really money-oriented. <laughs> Second stage was very passion-oriented. And that's why I share the story around the shades of gray, because I really went from one extreme to the other. I went from all money, no passion, to all passion, no money. <laughs> and I realized it's two sides of the same coin. And eventually you will become unhappy too, because it doesn't fully satisfy everything you're looking for in your career. You really cannot, at some point, sustain a life purely from passion. And also, you really cannot sustain a life purely from money. And so that's why I always tell my clients, because I've experienced this myself, I went through both extremes. And today with career coaching, I found that sweet spot for myself, where I found that shade of gray that really makes sense for me, where I'm doing something I'm really passionate about. And I'm working on a cause that I feel so strongly about to help people get that sort of career clarity and to help people not feel so lost in their careers. But I also get that financial upside that I am looking for in my in my life right now as well. I think at different stages of my career, I've valued different things and I've gone and that's why I've gone into these different routes. From your experience having done all this career coaching, right? what do you find is the main thing that's making it so hard for people to want to do what you did and make transitions in their career? Usually it's money, the lack of financial stability, 
That's number one. And then number two is no prior experience. So everybody's really worried that like, if I switch into a brand new job, no one will take a chance from me and I'll have to start all over again. And I'm already mid-career and I would have wasted all my time. And I, I don't want to give up the pay that comes with me having 10 years of experience or however many years it might be for you. So those usually are the two big reasons. You're helping these particular cases, these particular individuals transition through. Do all of them eventually make the change or have some of them said, nah, like, I, I think at the end, I'm pretty, pretty comfortable where I am. <laughs> like, I prefer to stay where I am. It really, really does depend person to person. And what I do is I don't force you into any uh, particular career path or I don't force you to make a change. All I do is I hold up a mirror for you to get to know yourself a lot better. So it really is just about what makes sense for you and for you to be able to make that decision for yourself. Because if I make a decision for you and I tell you what to do, you're not going to be happy either. It's just about helping you discover and find that right answer for yourself. So that's what I'm here to do. I'm just helping you to get that get to that answer yourself. And that's the most powerful answer when you discover it yourself. So for many of our listeners in particular, though, they don't really have the sort of traditional career start to say like you did in BlackRock for seven years and then you build it up to you know, uh, we start to something else. So in terms of levels, I think a lot of freelancers, uh, it tends to be a bit compressed in a sense. It's like, you know, you just go from project to project and you end up doing the same thing over the many years. So is that a difference then for freelancers when they, you know, if they want to start to position themselves to, let's say, do a career transition because, that it, you know, it, it don't, they don't have that ladder in a sense. It's, it's been pretty much one track. <laughs> Uh, more often so, so I think what I always say is it's all about how you pitch and sell yourself. Especially as a freelancer, you're probably already really good at pitching your services. You just need to be able to change that narrative to start pitching yourself in different situations and different scenarios. Instead of if you're, for example, let's say a graphic designer or UI UX designer, you might be really good at pitching your portfolio of work and just saying how you've got experience doing X, Y, and Z, and this is your, your portfolio and showcasing that. But I want you to now then change the way you pitch to instead of just pitching of the work that you've done, I want you to pitch yourself and why you are unique and why someone should take a chance on you. Because so much, truly, truly, so much of being able to shift career paths is being able to sell yourself so someone takes a chance on you. Because most of the time, people just look at your resume and they rely on your resume to sell yourself. But that's a very ineffective, I would say, way of selling yourself because then it really just depends on your prior experience. And so that's why people get caught up in this loop of, oh, I have no prior experience. That's why I can't switch jobs. I always say it's because you haven't figured out how to sell yourself and you're leaning too hard on your resume to do all the selling on your behalf. And so two tips that I will share around selling yourself. Number one is always go in with a warm lead. So always go in with a connection. And go in through someone's referral rather than you going in cold. And I'm sure as a freelancer, you know the importance of that as well in terms of landing clients. It's always a lot easier to land a client when it's a referral rather than a cold message that you're randomly blasting out on LinkedIn. So if you already know that for finding a client, finding a job is the same thing. Finding a new career path is the same thing. Apply the same skills you have today into that new industry for yourself. And number two is really get clear on what exactly your unique selling points are. Why should someone hire you? What do you bring to the table? Not just in terms of your technical abilities, which definitely you should highlight, but also dig a bit deeper into understanding your soft skills, your personality traits. Over time, have you acquired a lot of these skills like presentation skills, uh, communication skills, project management skills? These are skills that are highly, highly transferable that I want you to highlight. And also don't discount your personality. People like working with people. People aren't here to just get a robot to do the task for them, right? It's a human connection. Like uh, a lot of a lot of, you know, freelance projects, people pick a freelancer because they enjoy working with you because they have chemistry with you. Same thing with a job as well, right? You're going to be working with this person for 8 hours a day, 5 days a week. You want to find someone that you get along with and that I think is so crucial and a thing that people tend to discount in the interview process. They really think I need to showcase my skill, 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 skill. But actually there's so many other elements that is actually what people are looking for when they are looking to hire people. 
I do find that people do undersell themselves or underestimate how much that is a factor in the hiring process or someone choosing to use your services. Because I, I think especially as as the workforce so grows, <laughs> works the, the workforce shifts as well. People have found the value of that. It is not just about skills because you want skills, especially in such a connected world nowadays, you can literally get someone halfway across the world to you do the exact same job. But what makes you different, there's still a reason why someone would choose to have someone close to them, uh, working with them or for them. Yeah. And yeah. I'll give you a really relevant, a a relevant example um, that might help uh, is you would probably choose to work with a freelancer based in the country that you're in, let's say Singapore or the US, rather than to pick a cheaper option, maybe in a third world country, oftentimes because they understand the cultural nuances, right? As someone who is looking to hire a freelancer and also as someone who's pitching their freelance services, you might have come across that problem or you might have come across this this um, this, this this fact, right? Is that people tend to want to hire someone who already understands culturally how we work because actually that's the hard part. You can hire someone with all the technical abilities, but if they don't really know how to work with you, how to communicate with you, then you end up spending a lot of time pulling your hair out because you're like, this was not what I asked, but you spent so much time doing this and it's it's not what, 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 what we need to have, right? And so that's why I always say there's actually a lot of soft element and personality traits and cultural nuances here that people tend to discount. It really is not just about the hard skills. One of the simple ones was just like, I hired a podcast uh, editor for me, for because uh, I also have my own podcast. And so I hired a podcast um, a freelance editor a while back um, based in uh, Eastern Europe. And I think it was just, yeah, the cultural cultural difference. And I think communication is, is always hard when 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 they're not there or there's time difference issues and it's just hard for you to then work a bit closely together. So then they end up doing all of that work and then you come back and you're like, oh, that was not at all what I was expecting. Um, <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Well, I, I have to say for, for Yenning and I, we went through a few ourselves before we arrived at a, at a, at a format. But hi, everyone who has ever edited for us. Hello. <laughs> yeah, but, but yes, yeah, but Yenning and I, you know, it took a while for us as well to get our, our nice... Uh, system going as well so it, it takes time yeah and the weird thing is is like what you mentioned is really not about skill it is about those nuances that it's just it's just i i don't like it it's a very subjective because it's actually way sometimes. easier to teach people skills as well it's way easier to teach someone the hard skills than it is to teach people how to communicate with you or how to work hard or that you should be responsible or that you know you should do work you, you should be I, I don't know like it, it's it's way harder to teach it's way harder to teach those things like do things with integrity for example it's like h- how do you teach someone that whereas like it's way easier to teach someone how to like edit a podcast yeah um, right. click this or, button or you know drag yeah, this here yeah. <laughs> but, but do you find that sometimes now that you're independent I guess uh, you're working for yourselves or and you're taking on clients and so on do you find that sometimes if you feel like pretty uncomfortable about things like and you just you just say oh well it is what it is because you know to a certain extent you're just coming in and and work and taking on the procedures or, or taking on the, the systems that that have really been put in place by by your clients right and it's like in a sense you feel like you're a bit of a like a victim in a sense it's like I just want to work work with doesn't matter how I feel let let's just work with with what I've got and and, and make lemons out of this uh, make lemonade out of these lemons um how do you like address this. This, these thoughts, you know, when, when these thoughts come to your mind, hey, you're a victim. And, and so what I actually want to challenge you on is I want you to start adopting an abundance mindset. If that's how you're feeling about your job today, I want you to adopt an abundance mindset rather than a scarcity mindset. And I want you to pick and choose the right clients to work with for yourself. Because technically speaking, as a career coach today, I am quite similar in terms of the working style as a freelancer, right? I have to go find my own clients and I'm working one-on-one with my clients, etc. And you don't step on their toes, no? (laughs) Exactly. And so for a period of time earlier on, I used to let my clients dictate the conversations. And I used to come across these issues where, yes, I felt like, I had to make lemonade out of lemons. (laughs) And I've realized that no, that's not the type of style that I want to work with. And I need to put my foot down. And I'm not here to compete on price. 
I think that's what a lot of people tend to do is that they tend to compete on price so that they get more customers. And that might be something that you guys are facing as well, like as a freelancer, is you feel like if I cut my prices and I deliver more, maybe my clients will come, I will have more clients, uh, etc. And that used to be the mindset I used to have as well. Until I started working with a, a coach myself, a business coach myself, and they really turned my head or, or they really turned my mindset around where they told me you need to approach this as an abundance with an abundance mindset rather than a scarcity mindset. There are plenty of clients out there who need your help. But if you don't even respect yourself and you don't even respect your craft, no one else will. And I think that truly has been the turning point in my career. And today, I never need to deal with clients who ask me for, you know, who, who dictate the conversation or who make me feel uncomfortable or who I am unhappy to work with because I am, one, very selective with the clients that I decide to work with. And two, I've built up a brand for myself today and I carry myself with that confidence that people trust me for my expertise. Because at the end of the day, people are hiring you as a freelancer because you know better than them how to do this job. If they already know how to do it, they probably don't need to hire you. <laughs> and so I want you to cut, I want you guys to come in with that confidence, right? You know what you're talking about. And so you should then carry yourself with that same sort of confidence. And you should then be able to push back to your clients when your clients are challenging you on certain things. So in the same way, I do that with my own clients. When they start to challenge me, I also come in confidently. And obviously, it's 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 not like I'm bluffing or anything because I actually do know what I'm talking about. I do have way more experience than they do. But it's really just about not shrinking when they challenge you, which is very normal, right? Because you want to please your clients. You want to help them. It's easy to think your client might know better than you. But no, I want you guys to change the way you think about this, Right. You actually have a very strong skill set you're bringing to the table. I want you guys to carry yourself with confidence. How do you bring that to the table and you did that switch in your experience from finance to fashion, right? Because essentially you're coming in with all this experience in finance and zero in, in fashion and you're coming into and then you know you're going to you go into the fashion world and telling them that in a sense this you know what to do and so on. So yeah, how did you um overcome this when you or how did you get make a first step when you when you actually did so I think so much of it was the two tips that I shared which was what I implemented myself number one was the warm lead I went in to the founder because I had someone who knew the founder of style theory so that's way easier to get a job when you are talking to the person who is in control of the company number two um was I actually pitched myself to be at that company, there was no open roles. And so that's what I also coach my clients is you need to learn to create opportunities for yourself. And then number three was I really pitched hard on what I brought to the table. And while I don't have relevant skill set in fashion, for example, I showcased that I was really good at learning things very fast. And I actually bring a lot of other skill sets to the table that is incremental and can really help push their company forward. And I think really the the last thing there was really showing my interest and passion in the industry. Because I think most people want to hire people who feel strongly about the cause, who feel strongly about building the company. And so that I think was really the the, the final thing that helped me in, in terms of my transition. So I think as much as you would like to transition to a position that is equal or even higher to what you were doing in a previous industry, I think a lot of people face this challenge of most likely having to take a step down when they transition, right? Because you are in a whole new industry, you really 90% of the time might not know what the industry is about. You are learning. How do you approach that hurdle in people then? And I'll be completely frank with you guys. I took an insane pay cut going to uh, from finance into a fashion startup, right? But for me, this has actually paid off in the long term. So that's how I always think about, or that's how I always think about it for myself and teach my clients to think about, right? Is this short-term pain worth it for the long-term gain? If we keep optimizing our careers for the short-term, Will we ever get to the outcome that we want for ourselves in the future? And so for me, how I came to rationalize this for myself was that style theory was my business school. So I was going to spend two years there. And instead of me spending you know, several hundred thousand dollars going to get a business school degree, I was going to create a personalized business school for myself to really learn how to set up a company so that in the future, I really can succeed in terms of me setting up my own company. 
And I know the success rate is really low as an entrepreneur to be able to successfully build a company. And so I wanted to learn specifically all the skills necessary so I could increase the likelihood of me succeeding in the future. And so that's how I saw it. So yes, I took an insane pay cut. I took more than 50% pay cut um, to go to the fashion startup. But what I saw it as was this was my learning opportunity. And I spent two, well, I spent three years in the end. I spent three years there learning everything I needed to learn so that I can now build the company that I've been able to build today, where I really am able to see that financial upside for myself. And the financial upside that I see for myself today here is more than I ever would have even gotten if I stayed in the corporate route, for example. And so a lot of the times we tend to discount the short-term pains. We give up long-term for the short-term. And so we spend our whole lives optimizing for what is good in the short-term, and we don't think about our career in terms of uh, what's going to actually happen uh, or what would we actually want in the next 10 years, 20 years? Your career is very long. What's one or two years? Yeah, I think people forget that as well, how long it is actually. And is it more than 50% of a pay cut? Yeah. I can't imagine what your mom and dad must have thought about it. Dude, they were about to disown me. <laughs> 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 but I think the way that I thought about it was that I had saved up enough money so I knew I was going to be comfortable for two years and I could still support myself and the lifestyle for the next two years. But that was a very difficult conversation I had to have with them. Was there any any time in that whole journey where you, you felt like you might turn back, that it got too hard and you might turn back? I think moments here and there. I mean, running my own business, I think, has not been easy. And um, I think there's definitely been moments in running my own business where I'm like, Damn, it would be pretty nice to like have a stable salary, <laughs> <I know. laughs> you know, and not like go find clients every single month and work so damn hard every single month. And I think I used to get so anxious on the last day of the month because I was like, oh my God, next month, starting the first, I'm starting at zero. I don't know if I'm going to make money this month, right? In the early days, I really wasn't sure. And I, I, I remember those moments where I'm like, a stable paycheck would be pretty nice. At least I know <laughs> next month I'm going to be making X amount of money. I don't know. Is it going to be $0 this month? Or or maybe I'll make some money this month? I think those were definitely moments where that's been a bit challenging. Right. Sure, it happens like 10 times a year. Yeah, it happens a lot, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it still does. <laughs> I'm thinking about what, what you just said as well. You talked about, uh, about how you can change ourselves, but is there a way that you can change other people's perspective of you in this world? Because, for example, if I'm going into, to, in your case, for example, you went from finance to, um, to I mean, to, to fashion, uh, someone, one of our freelancers may be thinking of changing careers as well. But how do you persuade someone to actually take that chance on you? Because they look at you and think, oh, we've, done 10 years you've got zero relevant experience so why so i think so much of it is really being able to articulate what you bring to the table and be able to translate that into that new job maybe give me an example give me a concrete example i'll well, walk you through it uh, let's just say for example yenning and i as an example we, we we do media production and if you suddenly if you came out there and said okay i want to go and get a uh, career i want to go no longer do media production I'm i want to go finance. and be uh, I want to do, do finance, yeah, in Blackrock. Um, and the guys at Blackrock are going to think, you, what, you guys crazy? What do you guys know about finance after 10 years? So how do we persuade them? So I think for media production into finance, finance usually is a certain role where there is some sort of technical abilities to it. So if you were really serious about going into finance and you want to go into like an investor role, then yes, maybe that would take a little bit more of a convincing but I actually do think that you could potentially pivot into um, doing media for a financial firm, for example. So there's a lot of like marketing department or content department within a financial institution that you could definitely get your foot in the door. So I think that would probably be the easier way of getting yourself into finance, being able to really pivot and say, hey, I bring a lot of these video editing skill sets, or I'm able to really storyline something really well for you. And I can apply that into creating content for you, but just more financial based content, rather than, um, I don't know, retail content or whatever it might be that you guys are, are doing previously, right? So that could be one tinier half step or an easier step for you to get into the industry. But if you were really serious about going into, let's say, an investor role, Right, like you're going from like content creation, uh, media production into an investor role. Then what I would suggest for you is really be able to showcase why you're so passionate about investing. How are you doing this on the side? 
A lot of people have side hustles, right? And so, for example, your side hustle could be: I'm just really interested in investing in the stock markets, and I've been doing it on the side for myself for the past two years now, and I really love it. And I actually have a lot of prior experience on the side where I am doing deep research into what companies I should be buying, trying to figure out, and 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 this is the portfolio returns that I've been able to generate for myself in the past one to two years, right? So I think a lot of this actually, when you do pivot into your new role, you're generally pivoting into something that you're really passionate about, which means you're probably already doing a lot of this on the side right now, and you actually do have the skill set to do it. It's just about recognizing it and then being able to translate that for yourself into that new job, right? Because I think if you were truly interested about going into finance, you're probably doing something finance related on the side right now, whether it's investing in stocks, investing in property, investing in bonds. Whatever it might be, and so then it's just about showcasing and packaging that up for yourself to be able to successfully pivot into that industry. I love that you brought it up, Jennifer, because I think a lot of people,、uh, maybe like you, right? When you mentioned earlier, when you wanted transition into the the fashion industry, most likely, it, like you, I also had the same、um, concept that there are only two jobs within the fashion industry: either the fashion designer. Or you are working somewhere in a magazine, which is like I either don't like that or I don't have the skills for that. But an industry is an industry because it so many things revolve around that, and there's so many、uh, roles that have that are involved to support that whole industry. So it might be where you you just want to enter the industry somehow or have that inside a portfolio, but how do you apply your skills? To that appropriate role, exactly. Yeah, that's right. Exactly, and so I think that that's exactly what happened to me, right? I came from very much of a business finance angle, and so that's why when I went into fa- fashion, I, I didn't go into a fashion designer role. <laughs> <laughs> I, I went into a business role within fashion, and that was the perfect mix for me. And so I think it's really understanding what that perfect mix is of yourself, because actually sometimes with the pivot, it doesn't need to be completely doing something brand new, right? There was a reason why you actually were drawn to the role that you're in today. And there's probably some elements that you might want to bring into that next role. So let's try to figure out a job that really combines all of that together for you. Because if you give up everything you that from your existing role today, you're giving up all the stuff that you hate, which is great. But you you might also be giving up a lot of the stuff that you do like about your job today. And so then that's not really going to make you that happy. We want to be able to see how we can bring all the elements of what you're looking for into a job. We've been talking a lot about the money side of things, as I think that's one of the biggest hurdles when you're thinking about transitioning. But one thing which I think not a lot of people touch on, but it is a very sore topic, is the pride of it. Where if you had risen to a certain role, you're used to having. You know, a certain level of comfort, people looking up to you, whether it be inside your company or even outside looking in, say, "Oh wow, you look, you work at BlackRock. That's pretty impressive, right?" And then now suddenly, you you might be jumping into something where you absolutely no one has heard of it. <laughs> Don't know what you're doing. You might not know what you're doing. You took a pay cut on top of that. There's a lot of pride. That gets、um, injured along the way in that transition. How how do you help your clients deal with that, or how did you deal、oh, with man. that? Oh man, yeah, that was the hardest thing I ever had to do in my life. Because I think I'm so used to being seen a certain way, and I realized that so much of my self identity was tied to my title, tied to my the company I used to work at. And when I left all that behind, people started seeing me in such a different way. And that's the thing, right?、Um, when I first and, and I first moved to Singapore, the first question people always ask you is, "What do you do?" Right? When someone meets you today as a new person, they always ask you, "What do you do?" And I would, I used to say, you know, I was、um, working at BlackRock as a VP. I guess the, the reaction usually was like very positive <laughs> from that <laughs>、wow. interaction. Whereas then I changed my story now to, "Oh, I work at、uh, Style Theory," and people were like, "What? What? What is that?" A lot, of, a lot of people, right? And I'd be like, "Oh, fashion startup," and then they would immediately—you could see their eyes change or like their <laughs>、oh, expression、dear. change. Oh you no! Know? Okay, yeah, yeah. And <laughs> I used to be greeted with like respect or like, "Okay, you're legit." To now, <laughs> oh what? Like, are you even serious or like whatever? Right? And actually, that was really, really hard for me. Like, I'm not gonna lie, that took me a really long time to overcome because back then I also didn't have that sort of confidence in myself. 
And I also was questioning myself a lot. And so to see that in someone else's eyes when you introduce yourself really didn't help my own insecurities. <laughs> and so I that really that, yeah. was damn hard to get through. But I think what really helped me through that was being able to feel good about who I am. And I think once you have enough self-confidence, external validations matters a lot, lot less. And I know it's easier said than done <laughs> because trust me, the journey getting there was really freaking hard, <laughs> but it really does come down to that, right? You only care about external validation when you don't know who you are. When you don't know who you are, you want to be seen as a success and you want to build your life to fit someone else's mold. But when you're really sure about what it is that you want and you truly feel happy with your decision, it really doesn't matter so much what other people think about you. We've been talking a lot about transitioning and so on, pivoting jobs and, and all that. But what about situations whereby you really feel lukewarm? Like, I don't want to do any, I don't want to leave this state because I'm, I'm, everything I'm doing right now, year in and year out, you know, I, I'm doing my muscle memory, it's comfortable. Why, sh why do I want to make out this state? What would you say to someone who is feeling like, yes, I, uh, lukewarm, lukewarm's good for me and, and I don't want to do any, any I don't want to walk this boat. I'm going to be brutal and say this. <laughs> lukewarm is the worst place to be in. And I know because I used to be in that lukewarm phase. It's so easy to be comfortable in a finance job, right? You get the respect, the external validation, the money. And my work-life balance was pretty good. My colleagues were really amazing. And honestly, there really is nothing truly, truly wrong with that job. And so lukewarm really is the worst place to be in. And that's why it was so easy for me to stay for seven years because it was lukewarm. And so the analogy I always make is... Imagine if you have a lukewarm uh, pot of water and a frog was just sitting in that lukewarm pot of water. They would probably never take action, right? It's nice, comfortable, why not? I'm just going to chill in this pot. But if the pot was burning hot and was boiling water, you would immediately jump out, right? And so that lukewarm water, what's happening in that lukewarm water is that you're sitting in there, you're chilling, and every day it increases by you know half a degree half a degree, half a degree. So you don't really feel the difference. You're like, oh, it's kind of nice, comfortable, whatever. But one day you just get burnt and you die in that lukewarm pot of water because it hits 100 degrees and then you die, it becomes burning water. Versus if you were in a water that was already boiling, immediately you would jump out. And so I actually do think lukewarm water is the worst place to be in because you get comfortable, complacent, and you don't actually make a change for yourself. And so I really, really get you guys to really think seriously. If you are in that lukewarm state, is this really what you are going to be comfortable with in the long run? Short term, it's good. Short term, it's comfortable. Yes, there's nothing wrong with it. But is this truly the direction you want your life to go on? Because a lot of the times we think that, oh, we don't make a decision. A lot of the times we think that change is a decision we need to make. But actually, not making a change is also a decision you're making today. And we tend to discount that for ourselves. We tend not to think that, oh, if we're not changing... We're also deciding actually actively to not change. And is that a decision we are comfortable with? And for some people it might be, right? So there's certain things you prioritize, like maybe I just want to spend time with my family and this is just an income stream and I don't really care. And that's totally fine. But just know that this is a decision you've made for yourself and be comfortable with that decision you've made for yourself. It tends to happen a lot of freelancers because they're like, oh, I'm not very interested in anything else. I've already been doing this for so long, right? I mean, I think we've met, Yenny and I probably met many freelancers like that. And next thing you know, it's like, oh, more, more time has passed by and they're still doing the same thing. Yeah. yeah. And, it, and that's okay too. There's really nothing wrong with that as long as you are okay with it, right? As long as that's what you want from your life and that is the sort of things that you're valuing and optimizing for in your career is maybe just stability, having the free time, having an income stream, having the time to do other things with, you know, maybe your family instead. And that's totally fine. But just make sure that you are actually actively deciding to take this path rather than letting life happen to you. Having spoken to so many people over the years and people come to me with that question as well, you know, what's right? I, I think there are a couple of things that I have learned as well from a person looking outside in is that, first of all, everyone has a different measure of success. And that's why, Jennifer, I was asking that to you as well, because I think we, we tend to pack our success to what other people think success is. And that can be very injuring to someone, um, it, especially if you don't agree with that. You know, deep down, like, I, don't, I don't really like what that version of success is. But because you see so many people going after it, you think that's what you should be going after. I go after that as well. So one thing is a lot of people have different measures of success. and 
some people maybe their measure of success is just being happy, content in their lukewarm water. And that's also fine. And not to give unwanted opinion when it's not asked for. <laughs> no, I, co- I completely agree. And I, I think that that's, that's exactly what it is, right? It's really defining what your version of success is and not letting someone else dictate what success may look like. So even as you guys are listening to this podcast, take what I say with a grain of salt and see what makes sense for you. Take the pieces that make sense for you and discard the pieces that don't make sense for you, right? It's really about defining what success looks like for you and living life on your own terms. Because I think for me, I spent so much of my life, or at least the first part of my career, really trying to live a life based off of other people's definition of success. And that didn't lead me to the happiness that I thought I was going to, or, or that was I was seeking for. And so that really was where I learned that I need to define what success looks like for myself. And it really could look so different from what other people around you define as success. So Jennifer, we always ask this question to all our guests on this show. Why do you think it's so hard to talk to people? And, and, and when, when did that come about? On that front, I think people tend to think or treat conversations as they have to share knowledge. And so people then feel like they have to do all the talking. So a lot of times when I coach my clients who are maybe more um, uncomfortable with with a lot of communication um, or or you know sending out cold messages or talking to strangers and building that network for themselves, um, the big hurdle usually is that they feel that they have to talk a lot in that conversation. But actually, the best conversations is the one where you're talking very little and the other person is doing all of the talking. And so really the best kind of conversations is where you're just asking the right questions, being curious, and letting the other person talk. And that then takes off a lot of pressure on yourself. Because I think a lot of us tend to think that like, oh, if I come to this conversation and if I ask this person for coffee, I need to do so much talking. And what can I possibly talk about? Like, there's like I don't have any stories to share. Or like, I feel so stressed out sharing stories. Like, how do I tell stories? Um, And that's really not the case. Truly, the best conversations is just where you're asking questions. You're doing very little talking. And the other person's doing all of the talking. And so I actually think that that might help if you're feeling a bit nervous around having conversations with people or making small talk with people, that I think actually could help you guys overcome that that fear. Because actually people love talking about themselves. And so really the best conversations is where you're just asking a few questions and letting the other person do all of that talking. So that also applies to dates. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Because the other person wants to feel like you you care about their life, you care about their story. <laughs> and and again, our other question that we always ask to wrap it up. When were you, Jennifer, on most uncool and what will you say to yourself? Oh man. <laughs> Honestly, I don't think I'm a very cool person. In general, I feel like I'm very uncool. I mean, most of the time when I post on social media, I cringe right? Like I share so vulnerably, I share so openly. And I honestly think it's so uncool of me to share so openly. And honestly, I, I feel very scared a lot of the times like sharing so openly on social media. I think people have this view that like, oh, it's like, you know, people don't get scared to post on social media and 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 all of that. I get scared every time I hit post. I'm like, how is this going to be read? Or, are people going to think I'm crazy? And am I going to be judged? And I, I think that that's super um, scary. Um, but I think when I probably moved from finance into fashion and gave all of that prestige up, that's probably what society would said was would say is the least cool thing I ever did in my life. I personally think that's probably the coolest thing I was able to do for myself because I think it took a lot of bravery to do that. But I think from the outside looking in, I didn't get a lot of support, I think, when I made that jump for, for myself. Um, and I think a lot of people thought I was making a, a mistake. Um and so I think maybe from outsiders looking in, that's probably one of the less cool moments. Um, and I think from an Asian context, uh, when I share so openly about my stories, that's also quite uncool because I think Asians don't want to be seen so vulnerably, don't want to feel like they're laying all their cards on the table. That's how I I feel sometimes too, right? Like I'm like, why am I being so vulnerable? Why am I being so open? Because I mean, I'm always taught that like, I should just keep things private and not share so much about how you're feeling. And so I mean, I think 
from an outsider looking in, that's also pretty uncool um, to to be sharing so openly. And I think it's very uncommon for people to to share so openly. Um, but I think the reason I do it is because I want people to feel less lonely in this journey because I know how lonely I felt. And I felt like such an outsider feeling the way that I felt back then. And I just wanted to be able to share my story so that hopefully someone out there feels less lonely and know that it's totally normal to feel this way and it's okay to feel this way. And it's actually possible to get yourself out of there. So um, that's the reason why I do these uncool things, I think, in my life. It's because I think I have that strong sense of like mission and purpose around it. If people want to find you on your social media, where can they find you and how can they find you? Yes. Um, so I also have a podcast called Control-Alt-Career. Uh, so it's like Control-Alt-Delete, but Control-Alt-Career. Um, and on my podcast, I interview people who have made these career journey changes or made these leaps in their careers. Um, and I interview guests based in Asia. So if you guys are curious and want more inspiration, definitely can go check out my podcast. It's actually really tough for me to move then. And that's actually why I started my podcast, because I was stuck during Circuit Breaker. I had just moved to Singapore. I had like very little friends. Um, I'm an extrovert. (laughs) And so it was really hard. Honestly, I'm so grateful for, for, for having that lockdown period, because I think otherwise I would have never built a podcast, never built my career coaching business. So so I think truly, you know, a, a blessing as well. Otherwise I post daily on LinkedIn. Um, and I also post daily on Instagram and TikTok. Um, my handles is Ong Jennifer, so O N G Jennifer underscore. So you should be able to find me there. But otherwise, I'm sure you guys will put the links uh, to the show notes to today's episode, so you guys can check it out there and find me on social media as well. Scan this QR code now to find out more about Jennifer's courses. And for our audio-only listeners, visit ongjennifer.com. Like this show? Then rate it five stars and subscribe to us on YouTube, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uncool is a podcast produced, written, and hosted by Sean Lee Wen-Chong and co-hosted by Yenling Lo, co-produced by Raven Lim, and edited by Ray Ng. Uncool. It's cool to be uncool. On the next episode of Uncool... We are talking about the Hollywood schmooze. I was talking to Alex about this as well. Do you think you have it? Do I think that I have the Hollywood schmooze? Well, I don't want to answer this. <laughs> oh god, this is going to go on my like dating profile. <laughs> <laughs> Uncool. New episodes every Saturday.